1: That's what they're going for. Um, you can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. That's a big deal. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. That, that personal connection, I believe, to be super important. Again, I'm not a professional. Uh, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash today. You get 10% off your first month. That is com slash ifanboy. You are listening to ifanboy's Float with Scott Snyder. It has been a big month for Scott Snyder, helming big DC books like Swamp Thing and Batman Number 1, which just came out, as well as American Vampire and Severed from Image. The guy has a lot of comic product on the market, and he's becoming a big name very fast. We've spoken to him before, and we are speaking to him again. Uh, this time I'm joined by iFanboy staff writer Paul Montgomery, and uh, let's get right to it. This is Josh Flanagan from iFanboy.com. I'm here with Paul Montgomery and our guest Scott Snyder. Hey, Scott. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Very good. We wanted to take some time and, and get into it with you and talk about uh, the, the many, many, many things that you have going on <laughs> these days. And I guess uh, the, the thing that I was thinking about starting with is I'm just like, how has this been for you? This sort of utter, uh, you know, you took over two really big books in the middle of this giant media push and, and every, the whole industry is focusing on, you know, the number ones from DC. So how's that part of the experience been?
2: It's it's really intimidating honestly i mean you know i the only way to get around it is to just focus here's the way like honestly first of all like thanks for having me on again and i always love talking to you guys we're we're all like you know huge i fanboy fans on swamp thing and batman american vampire and everything so as you guys know behind the scenes but um i was just saying i was just hanging out with ron in northport so we love you in every way but the um the the fact of the matter is, like when I sit down to do the stories on these books, like today I was working on Swamp Thing Five, and it's so it's so much fun, and I I love I I genuinely love the stories we're doing, and I love thinking about the way Yannick is going to draw something, and it's like all of that vanishes, you know, and I just I really just sort of lose myself in the the narrative that we're telling, just because. I, I'm really excited about it. you know, like, honestly, um, you know, I'll stand by it. And then when I step away from it is when it gets really freaky, you know, where you, you get on Twitter, or you go on Facebook and all of a sudden there's like 30 friend requests. or there's a billion tweets about Batman or about Swamp Thing. And so I was talking to Jeff Lemire today about it. Cause I got a little, you know, it gets you a little just like jittery, you know, with Batman, especially just cause this, the, the readership is so high. And, um, you know, he was saying the same thing. You just sort of keep your tunnel vision and, and think about it as though you're writing it just for yourself. I mean, that's what I tell my students. It's just, It's You should just write it as though it's the story you're making for yourself as the one that you'd like to pick up about that character no matter what, regardless of whether it's the best or the smartest or anything. It's just the one that you would like the most. So when I actually sit down and write, I feel great. Like I'm, I'm really confident and excited about this stuff. When I step back from it, I have to sort of block it out or it gets me – it just gets me intimidated, you know. Even though it doesn't really affect me when I sit down again, <laughs> I guess it's it's just in the atmosphere so much, you know. And the characters just alone are intimidating. And that Batman and Swamp Thing are you know my two favorite DCU characters, so the legacy there is is a lot. So just being honest about it, it yeah, it's 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 you know it's it's been a crazy year <laughs> in that. But you know, again, the thing at the end of the day, I. The only reason I took on the characters is because I had stories that I really wanted to do with both. Before there was an opportunity to do the characters, you know, it wasn't like I was approached and asked to come up with a Bruce story or come up with a Swamp Thing story. So these were things I wanted to do from before; otherwise, I wouldn't have taken them on.
1: Now I know that you had you had a Batman story ready to go uh, with the stuff that you had in Detective and Black Mirror. But I'm curious, like, at what point that story ran out, and which part, you know, are you, when are you, you sort of doing new things that went past what you originally had in mind?
2: You mean, um, well, I, it was about, it was like about, um, I guess, I, I'm trying to remember when I talked to Mike about this Bruce story, about the one I'm doing now. Um, it really was, I guess it was maybe five months into the run. So it was somewhere around November, I guess, November, December, because, you know, I was writing ahead. So I had written five or six of the issues. And then I had this idea right around the time we were talking also about the Gates of Gotham material about, I was having so much fun on the Black Mirror story, which really for me was about challenging Dick Grayson, you know, by having Gotham sort of change itself to be a reflection of him as opposed to a reflection of Bruce, you know, this kind of dark reflection. And then, Um, thinking about how we could do that with Bruce like what did I think personally was his Achilles heel and the way for Dick it's his empathy and his uh, compassion all the things that make him great not those aren't weaknesses to me those are his strengths and the things that are great about that character but what Gotham does is just try and convince you that those things are you know um, are your um, vulnerable points and are what disqualifies you from being a, a valid hero so what would that be with Bruce? And, um, you know, it, it was around then. And the same with Swamp Thing, actually. I just finished issue – I'm finishing issue five, but I had – you know, I sketched out issue six. I know – I mean, I sketched out and outlined the first, you know, ten – basically the first storyline is about eight issues with then two issues right after it. And then Jeff Lemire and I were just talking about the second year of Animal Man and Swamp Thing, and we came up with something really big that we're excited about about doing there so we plot pretty far I guess pretty far in the future you know but um, I'd say about usually I guess when I'm about halfway through with the one I'm doing I start to think about you know the one the one after and if I have a story there or not you know I mean I definitely would have loved that. I've had other stories for Dick Grayson too I would have loved to do but this one really appealed to me this Bruce story and I thought I was going to do it in Detective honestly I didn't think that I didn't know that Bruce was going to be back in Batman or that there were any kind of number ones or anything like that and then Mike just said that Batman, they were going to move Bruce back to Batman and, you know, did I want to talk to Tony about switching? And I did. and He wanted to go on Detective. So, and then they told me it was number one, which <laughs> was like a whole other level of anxiety.
3: Yeah, is there, is there anything that you had to switch up to, you know, to allow for it to be a number one issue? Um, is there any different approach to it? Anything you had to add or subtract to keep it from... Well,
2: that's a- well, that's a good question. I mean, luckily, there really wasn't very much. I mean, the only thing I think I changed in issue one was Bruce gives a speech at one point. He's giving a speech to all these Gothamites, and he he mentions that his parents were killed in Crime Alley. And I think that's the only line really that I added. Um, you know, where he says, "As most of you know, my parents were gunned down, and whatever." So for the most part, nothing really changed because the story it really is about. Um, you know, Bruce being coming back to Gotham after the events of Batman Inc and you don't have to have read Batman Inc. or anything to get this. There's just a sense of of confidence and a sense of um you know enthusiasm to him being back in Gotham from, from him. And I hope that translates to readers as well. Like that. It's sort of a celebration of Bruce back in Gotham at first, um, with all the, you know, favorite villains and old and new. And you see the manor and the clock and the bat cave and Alfred and new Batmobiles and bat cycles and all that stuff. And then the idea is that, um, little by little with this series of murders, Bruce sort of is forced to come to grips with this notion that there's this organization that might exist in Gotham that he refuses to believe could exist because of a kind of past that he's had with them um, that'll be revealed later. Um, And that because the organization itself, if they do exist, they're part of like Gotham nursery rhymes and stuff like that. Uh, They have like this creepy nursery rhyme about them that people in Gotham all know. And they're sort of a ghost story about this organization that's existed since colonial times to now. So... The idea really is that um, Bruce is, uh, you know, extremely confident in knowing Gotham better than anybody else, and it knows him, and he feels like it's his his ally. And in this way, the question is, what if this thing exists that, that disproves all of that and that Gotham really is an ugly stranger and um, Bruce doesn't know Gotham, you know, and that would almost be the tag. It's like Bruce doesn't know, you know, Bruce doesn't know Gotham. And the sense of... Um, paranoia that would create if it belonged to a rival symbol and not the bat and if this organization was suddenly kind of at war with him and just decided now to kind of Gotham itself bring all of its sort of resources to bear against him and the bat family so in that way it's structured as a story that kind of begins in a place where because it's all about Bruce being confident in Gotham lends itself to new readers also you know in my opinion because it's it's very much about seeing what Batman does and why he does it better than anybody else. And it's sort of, that's a good jumping on point, I think in and of itself Because you see him stop his rogues, you see him stop criminals, you see his relationship with Alfred, you see his relationship with Dick and all that stuff, you know, cause it's, that's, so it was organically in there to begin with. So I sort of lucked out in that way that I didn't feel like I had to change, change very much at all. And, um, you know, with Swamp Thing, it was always going to be a kind of number one, (laughs) you know, (laughs) if it was in the DCU, whether it was Swamp Thing and continued in the numbering from Vertigo somehow, or was this, because it's a character that's, you know, been so outside of the DCU for a long time that I felt like it was, it was important to try and address some of the stuff. I'll say this, like I definitely, I didn't expect the vast, the, I, I think all of us were a little stunned by the numbers of readers that have come to the books. Um, and I, I was writing it as though for somebody who I thought there would be a lot of clearing up as, in terms of what we were keeping in the Swamp Thing mythology and what we what we weren't, and we're keeping everything, you know. But the the surprise was that there's so many people coming to the book that um, don't even know that Swamp Thing, you know, is not Godzilla or Swamp Thing is, you know, like you know anything about the character. So in that way, that's a book where. I do want to try and play a little more reader-friendly in some of the stuff going forward, um, just because I was so surprised that there were, and I'm thrilled that there were so many new readers. So, mm-hmm. I'm trying to tweak things, not in the story itself, but just in terms of remembering here and there that, like, if I'm dealing with Abby, who I'm really excited about reintroducing, um, you know, as as the woman that she was, but changed a lot because of what's happened to her in the interim, that a lot of people might not know who she was, you know, before, and so. Just making sure you sort of show it visually or something like that to set them up. So I'm trying. I'm trying to get better about that stuff. I just sort of run as though like you know the stuff about the character already in some way. So apologies if that <laughs> if it felt that way at all. But I'm really excited about where we're going with it. And it's it's easily a ride that anyone can take. That even if you don't know anything about the character.
1: Had uh, you, had you been doing? Uh, had you been going to do Swamp Thing after he returned? anyway before you knew it was part of the relaunch or was that oh yeah end?
2: yeah that's what, what happened was i was i've always been like a huge fan of the character and when i started working at vertigo i used to, I mean talk to karen about him all the time karen Berger, she gave me this little swamp thing statue actually from her office like early on um that i keep on my desk but she you know and i was always like <clears throat> if i could do swamp thing this is how i do it to to jeff jeff and i lemire would always joke around about if he you know what characters we would take if we got anybody and so I had this one thing thing in mind and then it was, I can't remember what month it was, but it was, it was well before there was like a relaunch really. And it was, um, you know, or uh, I guess a year ago or so, I don't, I can't remember exactly, but it was around this time. And, uh, I was cooking dinner one night with you know, my wife and kid. And, uh, before we had our, we have a baby now, but before that baby and <laughs> the phone rang and it was Jeff Johns. And I was like, Oh, I had only spoken to him a few times, you know, too. And I had met him obviously and stuff, but I had never gotten a call from him at home (laughs) before, so I was a little sort of taken aback, you know, and I'm like, honey, can you hold the spatula while I talk to Jeff Jones? And um, he was like, listen, you know, I heard you're a big Swamp Thing fan, and we're bringing him back in Brightest Day, and I'd love to hear what your take is on the character. So I told him, you know, my take. I was really nervous, but I told him my take, uh, which was this. It was this idea that what if if Swamp Thing comes back human, but with knowledge of everything that happened to – the Swamp Thing in the past, so that you get to start fresh, and you have Alec Holland, which to me has always been the heart of the series. Even when he's Swamp Thing, it's he's either longing to be to to get rid of the sort of vegetation on top of him and the Bernie Wrightson and Len Wein stuff to to become Alec again, or when he realizes he's not Alec, it's the inability of that character, I think, the Swamp Thing in the more run to let go of his humanity that makes him really interesting. His connection to Abby. Um, as somebody that, you know, he should technically just sort of give up and become this God, but he can't. So that humanity and that, that personality was always to me, the heart of the character. So starting with that and then having him have a chance to live a life where he might get married and have kids and just step away from this mantle of the green, because what he realizes is the green is really volatile the way all the elements are and not just this kind of wise thing or something to be, you know, nurtured all the time and the planet shouldn't all be green. (laughs) in some way, at least in the mythology of Swamp Thing. And um, the, what if it comes looking for him, though, and what he has to admit to himself is that the mythology of Swamp Thing and the, uh, the monster itself has been a bigger part of his life from when he was a child to now than he would care to admit, you know? And that maybe this is a destiny that stretches well beyond, like, the idea of the accident and stuff. Um, And that the accident, one of the things in the second issue that we're exploring is this idea of what if the accident that in Swamp Thing lore, like the idea is that Al Collin was this botanist scientist and he's working on this formula that basically would make plants grow anywhere in the world in the most arid regions. And then there's an explosion in his lab and he's covered in it. and He falls into the swamp and comes out as this monster. But what if that, uh, and in the Alan Moore run, the idea was that that monster discovers that it was never Alec Holland, it's like a copy made of plants um, and becomes this kind of god of the plant world. But the idea is that what if that accident actually precluded or stopped Alec from becoming the swamp thing he was supposed to be because it, it burned the chemical burns on his skin killed him before the green could infuse itself to him. And so it copied him in a way almost to, because he was such a promising candidate, and made this copy of him as Swamp Thing to sort of see in hopes, you know, uh, sort of uh, replicate whatever it was that he would have been. But The truth is that he's never been Swamp Thing as a human, even though he remembers, you know, the memories of this creature that was sort of made from him. So no one knows the Swamp Thing he would be. What if his destiny is to fuse with the green the way Swamp Things of the past have in life before they die? And in that way, um, he has this thing waiting for him that, you know, on the other side of, of the green that he's terrified of, even if he doesn't want to admit it, you know? So, um, anyway, so I told that to Jeff in, in more or less, you know, in that form. It was a little, le- it was a little less, like, um, articulate, uh, just because I was nervous and it was like, you know, I you didn't, didn't, you didn't have want it to as burn well. Right, <laughs> and he um, he liked it, and then he was really generous about thinking of different ways of setting that up through brightest day, through the ending he had for that. And so, um, yeah, that's that's how Swamp Thing came about. And then it was a few months later they started talking about it being number one, and it didn't really affect me in that way because I thought of it as a jumping on point for Swamp Thing. It the only again like the only thing that just caught me off guard was was just the sheer number of people coming to not just Swamp Thing, but all the books that have never read the character, which is wonderful. You know, I just, I, um, I'm just, I'm more aware of them, I think, now than on the first, originally I was sort of kind of thinking about, well, for people that know the character, they'd be interested to know what we're keeping and what we're throwing out. And so it was about making sure that the mythology made sense for people that know the character, you know, because he's had so many crazy iterations to say like, okay, well, it all stands and this is how it works. But, Seeing so many people that are coming to it with, with no knowledge of any of it, it's really exciting to think. Well, I don't need to be that concerned with that stuff, and it's out of the way now anyway. But I can sort of celebrate all the things I love about the character for fans that are new to to him also, and make sure to keep them in the loop. You know, with with not let, letting anything uh, not letting anything uh, you know um, slip that that uh, could be explained and stuff.
3: It's, uh, it's, it's been really exciting to see books like like Animal Man and, and Swamp Thing. And uh, and this week, uh, uh, Wonder Woman is is up uh, really high in our uh, list of, of pulled books on ifanboy.com um, to see characters that don't get as much attention usually or haven't in, in, in recent years, um, to see them uh, up at the top, in the top five, in the top two, in the top three sometimes. Um, and, you know, Animal Man being, you know, last week and, and, and Swamp Thing up there in the top two and three, I think um, with action comics, um, it's just crazy to see. And, and all these, it's really exciting to see the DC horror books um, really being a force to be reckoned with uh, in this relaunching. But I I wanted to talk about sort of one of the, there's a, I'd I'd kill myself if I didn't mention this. Um, uh, In, in Swamp Thing number one, Uh um, you've got a moment there and I, and I presume that this is maybe an artifact of it being potentially a, a, you know, a pre-reboot uh, book or a or a Vertigo continuation, but the uh, the Superman appearance. Um and, <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's, well, it's well, it's it's cool on two, on two levels. It's it's cool to see Superman interacting with Alec Holland and them being like, you know, uh, acknowledging Swamp Thing as a major force in the DC universe, and and this guy being on Superman's radar. But then also, Superman alludes to the fact that he's died too. Mm-hmm. So, was there ever a conversation about that, or did that just like sneak under the radar?
2: No, I mean, there was, I, I mean, I like the the truth is like, you know, I, I wrote, I didn't write it before, um, like so far before the relaunch that it was like all locked. I mean, you can, ch- you can change letters all the way up to, sure. you know, pretty close. So I talked to Bob and I mean, I, I definitely, t- I mean, I met the editor on it, you know, we, we spoke about it and I said, I mean, it's similar. I'll tell you this, like, here's a spoiler for you. Like in, in Batman, I had, have in issue two, I have a reference Nightwing saying, um, why couldn't you the Batman has installed this scanner in the morgue? It's a moment I really like, um, so that he doesn't have to sneak in anymore. And uh Dick is like, why couldn't have you installed that before you died? you know? Um and stuff. And it was the same thing. I was like, you know, if that's a problem, they're like, no it's not. And then at some point I thought um th- that that's kind of what I meant about the continuity stuff about new readers is that if I had realized how many people were coming to the book that were new comic readers, I would have tempered that dialogue a little probably with Superman. Um, even though I love that exchange, I think I could have gotten to it maybe without referencing continuity. But for me, it's important to show fans that the continuity that they love stands as long as it does, you know? So, um, it's, it's a little tricky in that way where, My feeling is that uh, anything, if you ask me if something stands, my answer is yes, because I haven't heard of any of that stuff changing, and I I don't think it has. You know, I think those stories are intact. I think the idea is just with these initial books that you don't want your stories to depend on those things, um, even though they exist, just because you want them to be new reader friendly. So that's why I sort of changed the line of Nightwing um, to something else later on, not because that story doesn't exist. And if you ask me if it exists, I'd say it does. But, um, because ink is going anyway and there's no way that could be happening simultaneously without those stories. Mm-hmm. But, but also like Superman, if you asked me if that happened, I'd say, yeah, all the doomsday stuff would happen. But am I, you know, it's one of those things that I got a lot of comments about like, oh, does this mean this and does this mean that? And I, I wish I, again, I wish I had known that there were, there was so, so, so many people coming to the book that would either be looking to see that that continuity was intact or people that didn't know it that were new because I didn't mean it to be something that was, you know, divisive or, or, or even like, you know, provocative in some way. I meant it just as a, as an emotional thing that I thought those characters would do that if Superman is someone who has died and come back, which he is, he would reference that to Alec, who was just did, went going through the same thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So I didn't mean it that way. I mean, that's what he's talking about. When he says that.
1: So. Yeah. I like that kind of thing in comics as a, like the story doesn't depend on it. You know, it, it's sort of, it's a, it's a one-off sort of beat, but it does reference a history and it's sort of vague and non-specific. And I know that everything just relaunched and it's a new thing for everybody to start, but it's, it was one of the things that was always fun to me is the idea that things had happened before this comic book that yeah. made these characters who they were, you know, and some people get the idea that means you have to go back and know and read everything that came beforehand. But for me, it's always just like, there's, oh, there's something else just out there that had happened that fleshes out them in the reality. So I think it's kind of cool that it was left because of that. That's also I'm glad, a
3: big I'm glad cultural milestone too. I'm sorry. That's also a big cultural milestone too. I mean, I think a lot of people who even haven't been reading comics for years have heard of, you know, the death of Superman. Um, yeah. I mean, like, maybe even kids, too, because it's just, it's, I mean, if you think of seminal, you know, Superman moments and, and events, like, that, you know, that whole doomsday thing, that's that's huge, and people know that who haven't even read that, those issues, so, and, and, and it is such, like, it, it's sort of, it's cool that the, it's, it's such a throwaway moment, it's like a throwaway reference, mm-hmm. this is why I, uh, back when I was dead, and it's such a powerful thing, and it's, and it's this godly character, and so I, th- I think it works, totally.
2: Thanks, I mean, I, to me, it literally is one of my favorite moments in the comic, I mean, I wanted that conversation to be about Superman trying to sort of welcome him back and Alec refusing to sort of, you know, take his hand in that way and say, and Superman just as a person, as Clark Kent is talking to him emotionally and intimately. And Alec, I wanted to have the reverse reaction that Superman would from coming back from death, you know? So that's why I picked them. I didn't pick Superman for a reason in terms of, um, you know, I already showed him at the beginning, so there was no reason to make it him that came down. Uh, you know, it just, to me, it really was the kind of coming back from death and the sense of, you know, um, but really of, of empathy that Superman has, too, and compassion that I thought would, would be a good fit for that conversation. And how out. often
3: How often does Superman get to commiserate about coming back from the dead with anyone? So <laughs> I'd imagine he'd bring it up with anyone that, you know.
2: <laughs> well now I feel like he's he's surrounded by a lot of people. <laughs> like we they could get a beer and talk about it.
0: Sure. Hal, know? Bruce, Barry.
2: Well time. everybody in the everybody in the Justice League, right? Except for um who who hasn't? When you think about it, Wonder has Wonder Wonder Woman die and come back?
1: She's changed a bunch of times. Yeah,
2: but I don't think she died, right? I don't so you think. have Yeah, Hal, Superman, Bruce, uh Arthur, I mean, yeah, yeah, of them. they could have some good conversation. <laughs> yeah. You
1: remember how pizza tasted before?
2: Yeah, it was different, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, this- it's, it's, I'll tell you this, like, it, it's tricky in the way that, um, yeah, it's, it's, there's a high wire between like the new, new fans and old fans and, and that stuff. And I feel, I feel really confident in terms of, I don't feel like there's, it's a high wire because I don't know what stands and what doesn't. That, to me, is what I understand of what's what standing is, you know, everything that's not visibly changed in some way. And I know that to be true on Batman. So I'm not worried about saying something and then having it be negated. I'm just worried about um, sort of being inviting to people that are trying things out and also being reassuring to people who, you know, and, and making things emotionally substantive for people that have been reading the books for a while. So in that way, it's a little tricky.
1: Is this the first time you've written Superman? Just that little scene?
2: Yeah, that's the first time I've put words in his mouth. Yeah. <laughs> the I I you know, I helped a little bit with the Flashpoint one, which was fun. But um that's the first time I actually wrote wrote Superman, Superman. He's probably like my most if I had to pick one character I would avoid writing, mm-hmm. he would be at the top of that list for me just because the problems he faces are are totally fascinating to read about for me but are so out of my wheelhouse that I'm not I'm not sure I'd be very good at it. Well, actually
1: that leads me to sort of another question that I've been thinking about and I would say I don't want to pigeonhole you but I would say most if not all of the stuff that I've read from you has is in the the horror genre or at least you know in detective it was it was creepy stuff it was mm. it, you know it wasn't supernatural horror necessarily but it was in that vein uh, we're we're afraid of you horror. is what we're saying. No, it's not. But I'm, I'm <laughs> curious if, like, I know that, you know, that's where you had prose work in that. But like, are there other types of stories, that, other types of genres and comics that you'd like to get into? Or is, or is, you know, you're still exploring and comfortable with that niche?
2: Well, I mean, you know, I think like the way you'll see Batman now, it's not as quite as... I mean, I feel like at the end of the day, I probably write everything like a horror story just because... What interests me the most about the characters, um, or the process I like to take, I guess, you know, and everybody has a different one, so this, I'm not saying this is like, this is the way you have to do it. Um, you know, when I'm teaching, it's always like trying to get students to understand what their personal way into a story is and to respect that as opposed to saying, here's the way you do it. So, anyone out there that wants to write, I'm not saying follow this, but. Um, Personally, what I try and do is figure out what excites me the most about that character as something that I love about them. So, for Bruce, with this, it's his confidence, you know, his his sense of of Gotham as his ally and his friend, you know, in this big story that we're doing now, this uh, the Court of Owls story. So the idea is that um, that uh, in that way, what I try and do is is go for the jugular and make it. Seem as though for that character take something that they they fear um, is true about themselves, which to me is usually taking something they you know take pride in and then flipping it around. So, like for Dick Grayson, the same thing: saying, "Well, your empathy is you know what's what makes you you, and what makes you great." Well, let's show you how it makes you incapable of doing what you're supposed to do and makes you weak. And the same thing with Bruce and the same thing with with Alec in some ways. So. That's that's sort of just the process I take in general, and I think it lends itself towards really scary stories, just because it's you know you're facing your biggest fears. So if you're emotionally invested in the character, then whatever it is that they're challenged by, whether it's like a supervillain, um, you know, in Batman, the guy doesn't necessarily have superpowers. He's fighting but he's you know he's a big. There's a lot of big brassy stuff coming. It's so scary, I think, because it speaks beneath the surface to Bruce's you know, fear that the city might be alien to him, even though he needs to know it. He needs to feel like it's his, you know? So um, I think there's an element, I guess, of what I'm saying is of psychological horror or terror to the stuff that I like the most and like to write that'll probably always be there, I guess, in some ways. So I'm sure, you know, I, I like writing stuff that's a little bit brighter or more whimsical. It's just that, that note, to me, is just how I get into a story itself from the beginning. So it's kind of just at the core of um, the way I think about a story, I guess. So I'm sure that there'll be notes of horror and pretty much, pretty much everything, even if I did Superman. Well,
1: it's interesting because if, if, you know, if we're going to talk about something like American vampire, it's like you have a horror story and then you're overlaying other genres on top of that.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) uh, I mean, I, yeah, a little bit now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah just hybriding it now, it's, the thing with American Vampires, to me the scariest parts are not necessarily like the vampires popping out but the emotional terror that the characters face when they're you know like when Henry's alone on an island in the middle of the Pacific and he thinks he'll never see Pearl again and he's being attacked by vampires so the vampires that are attacking him you know these subterranean eyeless vampires they're spooky but they're scary because they mean he'll never see his wife again, you know, who he, you know, left in a way that he didn't want to leave. So in that way you try and make it so that the monsters are extensions of something the character is really frightened of, you know, and make them scary. So it's always built on the emotional scares. The same way I was, you know, just saying about Batman or whatever. It's that these the court of owls, you know, and that stuff, this group that might be there is is really a kind of manifestation of Bruce's fear uh, that he might not, you know, be the guardian of the city the way he wants to be, um, rather than being scary because they look scary, which they do. (laughs) But, you know, um, what makes them scary is what they speak to, I think, psychologically in the character rather than, you know, what they just sort of look like. That's why to me, James Jr. There's nothing scary about him except what he means to Jim, you know?
3: Um, on that, on that same tip um, I wanted to talk sort of about how you approach writing inner monologue and one of my favorite things about reading a new Scott Snyder comic is how you get in the head of the given character um, you know in swamp thing you're including some you're definitely doing your homework there's some some minutiae about uh, plant life and, and stuff and 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 in uh, you know in detective comics there was a lot about uh, acrobatics and circus life and in severed it's it's uh, it's very it's it's all grounded in uh, in historical reality. Um, So do you consider yourself sort of a a method writer? Do you you like to do a lot of research before you get into a given character? Uh, What's your process there?
2: Yeah, I do. I mean, I feel like my Google search thing looks like the like the the search list of like a total lunatic where it's like acrobatics trapeze uh you know sorrel gum plant and then like how you dissolve a body with lye for like james junior or something and it's like completely i'm sure there's like a black mark against me somewhere in google for like the randomness and you know creepiness of some of the stuff i've looked up but i do i mean to me it's really built out of character i mean the with each story, it's it's the thing that is my goal, you know. Right off the bat, when I begin something, and I know I like to do narration in the first issue a lot, and not necessarily just a cold open, just because it's about winning you over to the character really quickly, and trying to have them tell you something intimate, even if it's overlaid over something that's dark, or they're just talking to you and you're looking at them, but some way that draws you in so that you know you're listening to something that they wouldn't say to just anybody, you know, but there's a level of confidence there that they're taking you into that, um, you know, pulls you in because, and not as a trick or a gimmick, but because I want you to hear them talking to you. And if you like what they're saying, or you, you're engaged by it, you're, you, I feel like you have a strong bond with the book, you know, in that way, the way I do, I mean, the way I do with that character. So I do try that, you know, um, in Batman, it's kind of funny because Bruce Bruce is a little different. Like he's not very confessional, <laughs> so um, it's whereas funny. Dick, not, th- not even in his own mind, I don't even hear it. No, he's not. I mean, I really. It was very. It was kind of tough. It took me a minute to like, you know, regroup from Dick because he he was so easy in that regard. He says like funny things. He's kind of like who you would be in the cowl, you know, if you were there. And then Bruce, even in his confessional moments, is really standoffish. So he always the trick with him is almost like other characters know him better than he wants to admit, you know, in, in the way that the things like one of my favorite moments in there is, is, um, he has, there's this moment, you know, in the I think it's in the second issue where he's talking to, to Dick and he says to him, Dick says to him, Oh, you know, I was doing this and this and this. Cause he asks him where he, where he's, where he was at a certain point And Dick tells him, and he's like, Dick says, you know, I I have the marks, I can show you, I can prove it to you. And he's like, Bruce is like, No, 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 that's okay. You know, and Dick says, like, oh well, look at this. You just, is this like a modicum of trust all of a sudden, like, he's joking around, you know, he's like, well, well, somebody's growing up, you know, that kind of thing. And Bruce is like, Yeah, I have to go. And then Dick thinks about it for a second and he's like, You already checked the surveillance footage, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you already saw that I was where I was, and Bruce is like Dick, you know me better than anyone, except maybe for Alfred. He's like, of course, I checked the surveillance footage, <laughs> you know, and then he walks away. So it's like the sense that Dick will point something out that Bruce wouldn't confess to you in his narration. But it's interesting. He's an interesting character in the way that I feel like he he doesn't feel the need to open up emotionally, and he doesn't feel the need to let you in in a way that shows him as vulnerable the way other characters would. He'll tell you information that he think is he thinks is pertinent, and he'll do it in a way I think that's interesting, like in issue one, I had like a narration I'm really happy with about Gotham and the Gotham Gazette and all this stuff but um he doesn't talk to you intimately the way other characters do, so you need to use the other characters a lot of the times. It's almost like writing an unreliable narrator you know because mm-hmm. he's so pathological in some ways and so heroic i mean i don't when I say he's pathological, I feel like sometimes people. Get upset and say, "Oh, well, he's you know he's this great hero." To me, he's the greatest superhero in the world. I mean, but there's nobody better than Batman. I love him more than any other character. So, I'm not saying that he's like the demented, pathological psycho. That has nothing to do with the way I'm writing him. It's more. It's just that I think he's driven by you know equal parts heroism and and a sense of purpose in terms of a sort of s- socially um, you know a, a duty that way, and then also by an obsession, a personal obsession that's deeper and that's pathological and self-destructive as well. Like he could set up programs to help Gotham, but he doesn't. He goes out and punishes himself every night, you know, and stuff. And that might be more effective or it might not, but it's, it's amazingly heroic and dignified and, and admirable. And it's also really strange and, (laughs) and obsessive and weird. So in that way, he kind of is like an unreliable narrator in that, what he would tell you about what he's doing is his perception of it from a standpoint where he he doesn't like to talk about the pathological aspects of it or the kind of more demented aspects of it in that way that he is you know that he's doing these things that are sometimes kind of questionable so it's fun to use other characters to point that out you know what i mean and to use them to get to the emotional core of the story meaning like 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 you know if if Bruce is is missing the point in some way because he's so like if he believes that he knows Gotham, it's going to take other characters telling him like Bruce, you know you're not seeing the forest for the trees here in this case for some reason because it's upsetting you a certain way, and you know he wouldn't admit it he wouldn't say that to you, the reader either, like you know so I don't know i I hope that explains that i I really enjoyed getting into the characters a lot. I mean, they're so different from one another you know dick and bruce and alec and the characters of american vampire it's you fall in love with them too and then as a writer and it's very hard to let them go i mean i'm very protective still of dick Grayson, and it like i feel like i i really it was very hard for me to let go of him and but kyle i'm sure you know is gonna knock it out of the park and i've seen a lot of what he's done and i'm really excited about it
1: well they were gunning for him a few years ago so it's not an unfounded fear
2: yeah, well, it's just hard because you get so close to the character and then you have ideas for where they're going to go next, you know, and I still have a lot of ideas for that character and things I'd love to return to, you know, with him um, and hopefully will soon.
3: How much uh, Bat Family, like larger Bat Family involvement um, do you see happening in in future issues of Batman? I mean, there's, there's four... Core sort of core Batman books that are specifically about Batman, and then there's the other, you know, it ripples out into the other Gotham books like Batgirl and Birds of Prey and things like that. But, um, is there a certain breakdown? Like, you know, is Damien just, you know, relegated to Batman and Robin, or, you know, do you take turns with them, or is it?
2: No, I mean, you'll see, you'll see in issue one, for example, you'll see Damien and Tim and Dick, um, and, uh, you will see Nightwing relatively often because the story really has a lot of revelations about the Wayne family, the history of Gotham and the Grayson family and the Drakes too, and other families as well. But so Nightwing is a part of the story in a way that's going to tie into Nightwing later on, um, as well. But, um, you'll see a lot of crossover later. I mean, the story in Batman will have ripple effects through other Bat books, you know, like, like immediate ones and then peripheral ones as well. Like it'll affect things, you know, that, that have to do with Nightwing and have to do with Batgirl and Damien and all those characters. So there's, we're aiming for a very big story. I mean, it really is like, it's designed like kind of in the, with the structure of a story like Hush or The Long Halloween, where it doesn't really have small arcs. It's a building story that's cumulative where it's, has this kind of big engine behind it. That's the big 11 issue thing. It builds and builds and builds that you can, hop on you know at any issue although you'd be remiss if you didn't hop on at issue one (laughs) and just continue all the way to the end but um you know that's accessible at any point but really is designed to be one one long narrative so um yeah it's uh it's going to have things that sort of spread into the other bat books and you will see those characters but At its heart, I really wanted it to be a story that gives you Bruce alone in Gotham for the most part, you know. Again, because it's something that we haven't seen in a long time, so I thought that would be, you know, the best way to approach it. And there's a lot of that, like kind of fun aspect of it that Bruce is back, and you know, a lot of a lot of the fun of having Bruce back in Gotham hopefully is there in the first initial issues.
3: I have a, I have a very odd question, just just, just very quickly, just sure. so. it, it's it's going to sound like a continuity question, but isn't. Is Jim Gordon is that his natural hair color or is he <laughs> dyeing his hair?
2: <laughs> it's supposed to be his natural hair color. Okay, I was, so he never, well, you never it, went he never went gray. When I saw it, I was surprised too. I was like, oh wow, he's he he's yeah he's a redhead again.
3: Yeah, because it's not necessarily like, you know, how old is he or whatever. It was just Is Jim Gordon the kind of guy who would dye his hair later on yeah. after he's gone? No, <laughs> right. So, no. yeah. No. yeah. No. all right.
2: Well, when, I mean, the thing, the thing that's cool to me about the relaunch, you know, and here's the thing. Like, I understand, and I can't remember if I talked to you guys about this, you know, privately, but it's a difficult thing to encapsulate to – just as to give a tagline to because you can't say everything is new because it's not you can't say nothing has changed because clearly a lot is changed um... or you know significant things since superman and uh, elsewhere changed um... but the way that it was um... the way that the relaunch worked for the people i know that i'm close with and that doesn't mean that this is true across the board because i'm sure there are people that had different experiences but for you know, for Jeff Lemire and for me and for Brian Azzarello and, you know, the people that I know, um, you know, relatively well, uh, the idea was that we had stories for characters, like I told you how it happened on Swamp Thing and I told you how it happened on Batman that those are stories that were long before the relaunch, you know, formulated in Animal Man, Frankensteiner characters that Jeff and I had talked about before there was a relaunch, you know, that he really loved. So um and similarly like josh Fialkov on a vampire i mean he writes straight vampire fiction outside of comics so it was the same kind of thing and um the relaunch gave us the opportunity to say here are the stories we want to tell and they might be a little more bold and they might change certain things if we think it's in the interest of the character um and you know it allows you to do that so in some places like batman there's very little change i mean you know in the world of Batgirl things, there's some alterations and things are different and stuff. But I mean, in terms of the history of Batman, the only thing that that's changed or that I, that I was interested in changing, honestly, or pitched, you know, the possibility of changing was, was a Joe chill aspect of stuff. Um, Not that Joe chill didn't kill his parents, but that um, (laughs) it was like some small aspect that now his parents were killed by, you know, the penguin or Alfred, but, the idea was that um i've always liked the notion that nobody caught um that that they never caught his his parents killer and that that's um something that uh haunts bruce more than the idea of the stories that were done with joe chill you know in year 2 and stuff like that what do you guys think
1: i he should no one should ever have caught the killer because he can never have that resolution that's why he's obsessive
2: that's what i that's the only thing that i in my little world of Batman changed. So I, 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 that I, I, will that will be articulated later on. That's spoiler, but yeah. um, to me, the idea is that Joe Chill is the name, like John Doe, of a guy that's not caught. And in that way, Joe Chill killed his parents. You know what I mean?
3: He's the, the one-armed man or the man with the hook hand or something. Like,
2: just, right, like, yeah, just never get, you know. Constant and foil. Yeah, and, and, you know, because it's not, and it's not that it's, somebody else killed them and there's another story ha- waiting to happen. It's Joe chill and that stuff, or, you know, whoever that is, but sorry, that's a dryer. <laughs> it's Joe chill. But, um, for me that, that closure, the story that was built out of it with the reaper and all that stuff. It's just, I just, just think it's more compelling if it's the case that never gets solved no, in some way. It totally makes you sense. Know.
1: But, you know, and at the same time, I think that, I think they kick the Jim Corden can down the road a little too far and he was a little old. And I I think that if you say, Well, he's got red hair and he's a little bit younger now, then all of a sudden there's all this life left in this amazing character who, you know, in the regular continuity as we'd understood it was probably, you know, would have had to be you know, he'd been retired a bunch of times. He'd been the cane. He yeah, in, he he's, like he's like eighties a... and he, he's <laughs> so much more fun as, you know Yeah, you know, competent guy who's who's a little over the hill but still pretty active. He's got his red hair, you know.
3: I like I like thinking about him as as uh, Brian Cranston who's doing the voice in the uh, Year (laughs) One cartoon. I like I like thinking that that grizzled and you know and that vital.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we uh, we're over at my house. Like we live in like a, a a sea of animated Batman stuff. My son is just at that age, so he's five, and like we see. Like we literally were just rewatching season one of the animated adventures today, like different mm-hmm. episodes and stuff. When I was we were hanging out, in Batman Beyond, Batman St- the V Bat- Batman that series, Brave and the Bull. everything is like it's crazy. But yeah, the the fun of the stuff with I mean, again with the relaunch, I mean for me, it's exciting to get to say, you know not not batman is younger and batman has only been doing this a short while so we get to change all of these stories that's not exciting i mean because i love the stories that were told and yeah there's like a logistical complication of thinking everything happened but you know whatever but the, the idea isn't to wipe things out that happen the idea is to just sort of have a freshness and a and to breathe life into some of the characters that you know um are there have been so many stories about it's just an easy way of saying here they are presented to you you know with a a slightly fresh take but you know the stuff that you loved, it's there with, with certain characters like batman or green lantern or whatever um but it just gives them a kind of vibrant quality i think that's cool that goes with the art and like the idea of batman when you see him he looks a little bit younger, but he's not. I mean, he's really not that much younger. They, The way it was explained to me was, like, <laughs> he was, you know, the difference between if Grant is rating him, like, where he's, like, 40 or 39 or something, and now he's kind of, like, you know, in his early to mid-30s. So for me, I, I like to think, like, I'm in my mid-30s when I was in my early 30s. Like, did I, was I that much different? <laughs> did I look that much different? Like, hopefully not. But the... The idea is just that it, it it signals to you that there's a lot of story left and to go forward, you know, mm-hmm. without without saying it means that everything is different about that character, you know,
1: you know it's what it's I'm saying? It's that elasticity of comic book time that I like, and it drives some people insane. And uh, I th- I think it's fun to play with it, like mm-hmm. that because in the end, it doesn't matter. There's no rules. You can do whatever you want.
2: Yeah, I mean, the idea is like. If you ask me if the stuff happened, I mean, I tried to make Batman 1 and, you know, a celebration of the stuff that's happened too. So you see Professor Pig and Two-Face and James Jr. and all that stuff, like, together. Um, And Jim is in it and Alfred's in it. And, you know, when you add up the stuff and you try and put the math together of, like, did this happen here and did that happen there, I mean, I feel like it starts to lose the fun in the way that what I'm saying to you is, the stories that you love, they're intact. The characters are alive. They're all, you know, who you like them as and who I like them as and who all of us on Batman like them as. So let's move forward, you know what I mean? And just go go with it, not, having, thinking, to, not thinking to yourself, we wiped something out that you loved because we're saying it's not. But yes, they might look a little younger. Yes, there might be a sense of, you know, the universe being a little younger and all that kind of stuff, um, which is, you know... Decision that's a big decision on the part of Editorial or Warner Brothers. So it's not like, you know, all of us writers are like, let's make them younger. So the idea is that we're saying to you, these characters are, you know, they might have a younger feel, but we we love the history as much as you do. We're saying it's there, you know, it can be referenced, but let's move forward. And Bruce actually has a speech in in um issue one. Where he's talking about the revitalization of Gotham. And it's something that's going to play a big part in the story of Batman, this project that he under that he undertakes, um, that he presents um, to these socialites and stuff about what he wants to do now that he's back. And he says, I want to reinvest in Gotham. My interests have been sort of far flung lately, um, which implies, you know, Batman Inc. and everything without you having to have read it. But he says, the idea is basically that, you know, the the narration in the first issue is all about this column in the Gotham Gazette that's um that's always uh where on weekends it runs and they ask passersby uh about Gotham and they ask them to describe the city in three words or less so and then they print whatever anyone says no matter if it's good or bad and so Bruce is saying about how a lot of the a lot of the um uh Words, you know, are the ones that are most frequently used are like rotten and cursed and all that stuff about Gotham and so on. He's giving this litany of stuff. Um, But he's saying in his speech, he says, you know, if we ask ourselves what Gotham is all the time and what was, you know, and we become all we see is the things that, uh, you know, uh, that are reflections of our own fears and hopes right now. Um, and stuff. And, you know, the city becomes beholden to that. And he says, but if you ask with me what Gotham can be tomorrow, um, and what it will be, then you're shaping it, you know? And so let's go forward. So he's trying to say it some way, you know, without being meta or whatever, cause it's, it's really about what the story, what's going to happen in the story and not about the relaunch. But in some way there is a nod there to say the history that you love is preserved. Certain sections of Gotham are not being changed. But, you know, these ones that he's talking about, that there, were, there wasn't something there already, he's like, here's what I want to do and move forward with me. So I'm hoping that, you know, people get into the spirit of that in the way that when you do the math and you try and figure if Green Arrow is like this, and there's a lot, you know, admittedly there's going to be stuff that gets, you know, you t- tangled. But if you love the characters, the way that I can tell you this, like nobody's on a book that I know of where they don't, they didn't, they didn't love those characters. And that's why they've been given the chance to tell a, a story with that character in whatever form they wanted, if they wanted to reboot the character or whatever, you know, um, or not. And so they're, you, all of us like love the characters as much as you do. And we wouldn't be here just trying to wipe stuff out or change stuff for the sake of being sensational, at least among the people that I, I know, you know. I mean, and in that way, we're, we're asking you to say there might be some stuff that's a little, you know, different looking or nerve, nerve-wracking because it's this or that. But, you know, trust us because we, we care about these characters the way you do. And let's, you know, look look ahead of right now and go that way together. And, you know, hopefully we'll all have fun with the new stories that we can tell. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. It does.
1: <laughs> now – I I may have asked you this question in the past, but even since then, I think it's changed. Um, It's almost more of a technical question. We we spoke to you when you were sort of starting out, and we spoke to you, you know, right at the beginning of Detective when you were rising, and now, you know, you're kind of at the top of of the DC heap at this point. And I'm really I'm curious. You are. You know, what do you want? Um, I'm curious, (laughs) sort of, what you know now technically about making comic books that. That, you know, maybe you look back at some of your earlier works. You look back at, say, the you know, the first uh, arc of American Vampire or something like that. Something that that a way that you wouldn't have made comics the way that you, then that you you would now.
2: Yeah, that's something that's a think. really good question. There's definitely things I do differently. Like, I was much much more textual back then. Like where. I look at the first arc of American Vampire and I needed everybody to say everything informationally that explained everything. And I'm super proud of it. I mean, I love, I love, you know, I love that first arc for what it means to me and everything. But um, there are things when I read it, I would correct, be like less panels, less talk, less, because at the end of the day, what I learned with Raphael and then with Jock and, you know, is that, you can really trust the artist to do a lot of the emotional storytelling if you're with somebody that is on the same page as you, story-wise. So with Batman, it was really important to connect with Greg Capullo, who I think, honestly, is just going to knock it out of the park. And, I mean, I, I wouldn't be talking about him and his art so much, Honest, Like, I feel like I'm a relatively transparent dude, <laughs> where when I have like really don't like something or whatever, I, I'm not – I'm not, I'm not very good at going out and saying, oh, this is going to be awesome. And, if, and I wouldn't do that. I'm pr- I promise you, like, I wouldn't go out and be talking about my Batman story or Swamp Thing if I wasn't really super excited about it. And I've been trying to talk about it as much as I can to, to anyone, you know. But um, with Greg, I really feel that way about his art. Like, he's doing the work of his career, and it's just wonderful to watch because he goes to the mat to make it really interesting, each each page. And it gets better and better and better and better. And it starts off great, too. But to see his work on Issue 2 and 3, now it's like every page is is pretty amazing. So, you know, at first it was like I was really blown away by what he did on Issue 1. But when I saw what he did later and he starts flexing his muscles, it was really um, inspiring. and he, It's inspiring to work with him. And he's a funny character as well because he's, he's a great guy. He's just like, you know, he's, he's a personality, too. So um as we all are but the um the idea with what I've learned is really that I mean to trust your artists and they're your partner you know your co-creators on the book is the way to feel so it wasn't that I didn't trust Raphael it was I just didn't know how to work I didn't know what how much room to give Mm -hmm. and um you know I feel like I was more controlling and a little bit more even though I didn't tell them the angles and stuff, I just feel like I was so nervous about the story not coming across visually that I was always putting in everything that I wanted to get across, you know, in in exposition or that stuff. So I feel a lot looser about it now. Even though I definitely I can be a, a wordy bastard on stuff too and explain a lot of things. Um, Do you have
1: like I, Alan Moore style scripts? Are they very detailed?
2: Yeah, I mean, at first they are. I mean, the first issues of the series are often really, really, really detailed. Um, just because I feel like we're getting to know each other and I try and explain a lot of the tonal stuff. So, like, the first issue of Batman was really long. It was, like, 40-something pages long. And um, that was, like, a total, (laughs) totally the wrong way to approach Greg. Um, The two of us, like, at first, we both, it was like I didn't know that, that that would, you know, that would sort of, you know, freak him out. And I think he, you know, didn't know that I didn't know that. And so there was some like, you know, at first we, we definitely, to be totally honest, like we weren't sure about each other, I think for the first couple of weeks where it was like, you know, circling each other a little like, well, you mean you don't want that much stuff in a script or you don't want, and then we found this really good medium of working where it's like totally full script and really detailed when it needs to be. And then in other places really gives him the room to shine and do things that he wants visually and some of the less like the less choreographed sequences that are more action-based or that kind of stuff so um and he's wonderfully expressive so it's been great to give him more room in the conversations as well so um yeah you know in that way i feel like I've, i've i hope i've grown a lot in that regard i mean i'm i'm still really proud of that the first stuff in american vampire but now it's it's a lot of fun to sort of trust your artists a lot more but the first scripts are pretty detailed always and then I try and loosen up as I go forward, you know, they're still full. I mean, I don't think I've ever written anything that was, you know, like under 25 pages or something for a 20 issue, 20 page issue script. But, um, you know, um, I guess maybe they, maybe they're more full (laughs) on the fuller side. uh, I'd say Uh, I'm definitely not, uh, I'm pretty neurotic about, you know, making sure, that it's clear to the artist tonally what's happening a lot. So I don't do a lot of this. I'll say this like, I don't say a lot of like, you know, high angle shot of this or low angle shot of that. That stuff I've never, I've lay off. Like, I'm not, I don't think I know that as well as anybody drawing it. I do say something like this like, I'll talk about it. this, this page is, should be very tense because the conversation is, it, the subtext of the conversation is all the history between these two characters, which is this, this, and this. And so, however you want to draw it, here the panels like you know, Pearl here, Skinner there. You know this, and I don't give lots of visual description, but I give a lot of tone description to try and give the artist a sense, a room to play. But I try and nail down for them what the feeling should be. I guess I hope that makes sense.
1: Are you a fast writer?
2: I think so. I mean, I know there are guys that are faster than me, but I mean you know i definitely i spend a week on each script but it really takes me maybe 2 days to 3 days to write it and then i spend the rest of the time really rereading everything up to that point or reading you know the scripts around it thinking about it and then editing it and so i try and really devote i mean 3 books a month is is my maximum and what i'm comfortable with and that's that's what i have right now there was a period where there was an overlap between the relaunch and and what I was doing, and I was writing five books plus the, you know, gate not including gates and stuff like that, which I was helping with a lot. So that when I was doing that, that was the hump period where I felt like if I could maintain, you know, the level that I wanted with the books in terms of what I hoped that I liked them as much as the books that I had done that I spent more time on. Then, you know, I would see if I could handle more than three. Um, and I feel like I, I I could, you know, I can, but I. I just don't enjoy it as much. I really I like getting to spend the extra time and go back and Do you, you know, t-
1: rework the stuff. Do you tend to be, I guess, uh instinctual with the way that you write? Are they are they plotted out pretty heavily beforehand, or you just sort of let them take over on the page?
2: Well, they're plotted out in the way that I know the beginning I know the first few big beats and I know the ending. And sometimes the ending will change, like when I get there, but I need to have a very good compass for me personally, and again, this isn't something that I have like, other friends that write in the opposite way that I do, where if they know the ending, they can't write the story. Um, but for me, I need to know what I think it's about, at least when I begin it. So like what I said to you about the Batman story and what it's about, about Bruce realizing that he doesn't know about world he thinks he does, that is every issue will have some element of that. And if I know that, I know the first couple beats, and I know where, I, where what I think the ending is um, – and I write an outline for that. Um, the middle issues for me, I try and leave myself more wiggle room where I know the big things that need to happen. So maybe one event, each issue. But the particulars of the conversations and who he's going to meet and all that stuff. I try and leave open to give myself some room to play. So that's kind of my, my method is as long as I really know what I think it's about um, you know, deeply, in a, like, that this is what it's absolutely about for me and that won't change um, you know, in a big way. I'm okay. I, I feel confident going forward because as long as that stuff's in every issue, I feel like a lot of the plot stuff and you know a lot of the a lot of the the, the beats that are more more just sort of straight story stuff like action and people will forgive you if you get it wrong <laughs> as long as you or you don't do it as well as you could as long as the heart of the story is there in every issue.
3: Can you talk a little bit about your collaboration with uh, with Jeff Lemire? Uh, the, I mean, we just uh, we just saw solicitations for uh, the number four issues of mm-hmm. Animal Man and Swamp Thing today, and you can already we can already see that there's a, a linked uh, antagonist, um, yeah. the two books. And but you you guys have been talking on Twitter for for ages now about how you're you're working <laughs> really closely together. Um, what's so? What's your collaboration like?
2: Well, Jeff is literally one of my best friends. I mean, in and out of comics. And, you know, I mean, we joke about having this, like, raging romance going on. But he's really just my my, my closest friend, I think, in comics in general. And um, we trade everything. I mean, I show him all my scripts for Batman and everything. And he shows me his for Animal Man and for Superboy before. And the only thing we don't like to trade is American Vampire and um, Sweet Tooth because I enjoy reading Sweet Tooth when it comes out. And he likes reading... American vampire, so um, you know we talk really frequently, and because we have really similar methods, I think. I mean, we were friends, and then we started sharing stuff, and we we both have the same kind of method of writing, where we do the same sort of outline, and we approach it the same way. So it's really easy to talk, you know, story together because he needs to know the same kinds of things about his story that I need to know about mine to get going. So I, before I talked to you, like literally a couple hours before I was talking story with him about the final issues of the first arc of Swamp Thing. So in terms of the collaboration itself on those books, I mean, we always wanted to sort of have it be a shared world and have characters that crossed over and have buddy encounter Alec and all that stuff and things. But, um, um, there is a shared antagonist in that these elemental forces that we're dealing with are part of one system, you know, so that for us, it's really about the red and the green and this, this other force, this, this one, that's really about rot and decay. Uh, and you know, uh, usually being in balance somehow that they're always kind of at war. Um, and the, the elements themselves are, are violent and are, um, uh, you know, uh, unpredictable and volatile, and they're not sort of calm, peaceful, like the green isn't peaceful you know and and neither is the red, and neither is this other force they're always looking for dominance, and at certain points in history, one has had you know power over the others, and that's always a bad thing, so we're both dealing with the same antagonist as a force, but that doesn't mean you'll necessarily see them come together and cross over and literally fight something together at the end of our arcs just because to be clear, like we both really wanted to do our first arcs and stories that established our characters separately, you know, so there will be a little bit of crossover and you will see them reference each other and stuff like that. Um, and we do have big stories planned that will bring the two characters together closely for the future. Um, I mean, very, like very, very big stories we're really excited about that are coming soon, but for these initial stories, we just wanted to show that they could independently have stories that were really compelling, but, signal to you that they were in the same universe and that the events of these stories will sort of snowball into something that's gonna to happen together as well.
1: The the other day I was I was literally weeding my yard and I thought hey. <laughs> Oh thank you. I was like, he's right. <laughs> these weeds really are awful.
2: I know, I know. They are it's violent out there. It just happens so slow. It's like paint drying. <laughs> yeah,
1: you don't mulch that part and it
2: gets taken over.
1: No one wants to hear this, but either way.
2: no i'm excited about it man i really am i mean and there's nothing better i mean i feel like the goal in comics you know for me part of the the thing that makes it so appealing aside from just you know it being comics which are awesome from the beginning and have always played a really really you know major role in my life (laughs) um is the collaborative aspect like Coming from a literary background, the thing that really I never liked about that, um, as much as I do like writing prose, is just the total isolation all the time and making everything by yourself and not getting to work with friends ever, anything like that. You know, it's you and the computer and then your editor at some point a year in the future. And here, the fun thing is like, you you get to work with people who become your friends. The way I feel like I consider Jock and Francesco and the guys from Detective, they've been, like close friends, you know, in the industry and outside of it. Um, and Raphael is legitimately one of my very close friends too, outside of everything. Um, but Jeff is somebody, you know, I was friends with, and now, now we get the chance to work together and there's nothing, there's nothing more gratifying than get to call up your buddy and be like, hey, let's talk about story today. So the goal, if there's like a goal in this, all of it, it's, to be able to continue to do projects like these ones that, that I feel like I'm getting to do now. I mean, if there's any way of just sustaining it, that's, that's what keeps me up at night. Like partly trying to make sure that these are absolutely as good as can be is I just want to be able to keep doing it. Cause I really love doing it <laughs> as opposed to, you know, I don't care where I fall in the DC spectrum, or where I fall in the, you know, what I get for pages or whatever. I'm pretty, um, moronic about that stuff honestly but the I don't mean that as a look at me I'm so humble I mean it like as a dumb as a criticism (laughs) like I should be more mercenary about that stuff I just don't um I just am so afraid of not getting to do this the way I'm getting to do it now where I get to tell the stories I want and I get to work with people I really like and I'm just very very grateful to people who read our books and keep me doing this and I like that's why I I swear I'll like never give it less than 100% to try and make, you know, each issue worth it. That sounded really corny but I mean it. <laughs> For real. I really do. I swear to god.
1: <laughs> we absolutely believe you. See, that <laughs> sounded sarcastic but it wasn't. It's just cuz I'm tired. It's late. Um, anyway, I think uh I think we've uh pretty much touched on all the stuff. We Paul, did you have anything else that you would like to? Into?
3: No, I think we're good. I'm just uh, I'm I'm really excited to see like a, you know a book like you know Swamp Thing have, have such prominence and and the idea that you know out of the, you know the first couple weeks of of these new books, something like Swamp Thing and, and Animal Man are, are the are the, the you know my favorites so far. And uh thanks. The the idea that they're going to you know cross over at some point and and that they're they're so closely linked is really exciting and it's you know we the people talk about event fatigue a lot and and you know sort of roll your eyes when you hear about a crossover but some of these crossovers and and not just those I mean there's some other ones coming out of the relaunch the really interesting pairings of of creative teams and of characters and stuff and it's um you know I, I haven't i haven't loved every single reboot book but i've i've liked a whole bunch of them uh sort of a an alarming number of them to my wallet um <laughs> yeah. but no I'm, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with it and uh and uh, there's some really i think a lot of exciting story potential coming up so uh thank you for the hard work it is very much appreciated
2: no i thank you guys i mean and i promise too like with that i mean you know the re, the way if there's with this stuff at least like I don't have a big interest in doing, like writing big events or that kind of stuff either, so much as just getting to do the stories with the characters I like, you know, this way. And Jeff is very similar. So we're not trying to build an event in the DCU dark. We're trying to do, we're going to do a story that is really, really big for our characters, but it doesn't depend on you buying necessarily booked books, you know, and that that stuff. Just a story that really brings them, pits them, puts them in an interesting place emotionally and psychologically and challenges them in a big way, but it's something that is organic to what we like about the characters as as friends, you know. So it's there's no there's no gimmick there, meaning we're pitching it to DC <laughs> and saying if you if you don't like this we need to be able to do this to to write these books after this first arc, because we're so excited about this story. It's not them saying we need a crossover in the DCU dark. They don't even know. We haven't even told them what the story is yet. <laughs> like we're meeting with them in October, I swear at the, at, at Comic-Con to be like, to double team them and be like, cause Jeff will be here and be like, listen, you have to let us do this story cause we love it. And just crossover in our books, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's definitely, it doesn't come from a bad place. I promise. It's not like crossover, you know, mandate or anything like that. And, you know, again, like, there's a lot of stuff just we're excited about in terms of the, I told you what Batman's about, you know what Swan Thing's about, you know, and what's coming up with Abby, um, a lot of big revelations and stuff, and then American Vampire too. I mean, this coming arc is like... Uh, this is Jordy Brené, you know, so I'm really, really thrilled that we were able to get him. Raphael, like, is over the moon, too, because he's one of his idols. And then it's all about, like, the secret history between Skinner and Book that, you know, the guy who brought Skinner Sweet down before he was a vampire um, sure. and then was infected with the virus and then died himself um, before – um, really Felicia was born who's his daughter who's half vampire. Um, but it's all about them growing up and their relationship with friends in the Indian Wars and this possibility that there might have been a vampire species indigenous to America that's more powerful and predates Skinner Sweet. Um, and then the second part or the starting with the arc, that's a three-issue one, and then right after that we're back with Raphael in the fifties, and that introduces like this. Character that's we've been dying to get to—that's like, because um, we're both big fifties. I'm big, really big, you know, Elvis and fifties fan. um That's basically like our Van Helsing, which is like this rockabilly, you know, kind of Elvisy vampire killer. <laughs> sounds <laughs> that like sounds awesome. That's pretty cool. He drives this car that's like Christine, and he's got like, he's he's like he's basically a kid, and he has a history that ties into a previous arc of American Vampire in a way that's part of the fun of the mystery of why he's after this vampire who he says killed his family and he's kind of chasing this vampire for most of the the thing. And it's framed around this kind of car chase, this like death race that kids used to be involved in. You know what I mean? Where it's like the, the rebel without a cause kind of car chase, car race, you know, up to the cliff. But um, he keeps like a set of teeth, this wooden teeth in his bag. So when he takes down a vampire, he always like likes to put in the teeth and then um, bite them. And tear out their throat with these wooden teeth, and then uh, he uh, Raphael is doing the covers like these awesome '50s advertisements, <laughs> like the kind of like you know, kind of this Norman Rockwell feel or this very very you know bright kind of sure. commercial thing. And the first one is is this guy leaning against a jukebox, um, smiling with the wooden fangs in, and this bright kind of detergent kind of lettering. You know, it says "Bite them back." American Vampire, <laughs> number twenty two. It's I'm, I, yeah. There's I don't know. I, I'm very excited about this year. I really feel good about what's coming up. So,
1: well, you have that's uh, ample num no rambling. Today, but <laughs> I think. Uh, and and you continue to work with what what is really an unfair share of excellent artists.
3: Honestly, there's there's never been a, an ugly looking Scott Snyder book because you work with the <laughs> best in the business. It's it's insane.
2: So, I know I was I was like just skyping with Yannick, joking around right before I was uh, found out that my mother <laughs> can't take our kids for the weekend because she has shingles, um, which I was talking to you guys about before. <laughs> Sorry, mom, I don't mean to air your dirty laundry. I, I guarantee but... you, she doesn't listen. But if so, <laughs> thank you. She probably does. Is the scary part is my my parents like. They freak me out because they check. I'm like, you guys are supposed to be less supportive, you know, as for a writer. Um, mm-hmm. Like ruining my whole thing. But um, you know, I, again, like I, but I write pretty dark stuff, so I feel like it makes up for it. But anyway, the, with a lot of kids and parents. But um, the the. Uh, the before that I was talking to Yannick and um, we were joking around about you know the stuff that he wants to do coming up with some of the designs and things and it just believe me i have like moments like that I'm I feel very very grateful to get to work with the guys I do you know I've never you know there's not been anybody that you know I've from Francesco to Jock to Raphael Sean Murphy has just knocked it out of the park um, and, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Way you see issue five? Dude, it's totally nuts. But the, he, and the thing that's exciting about working with them is they're, I'll tell you this, like the thing that I try and push for, because I'll be honest, like there have been different people on some of the books that I was put on, you know, on Detective and stuff like that. There were people that they suggested or people that were there, you know, um, and I had an opportunity to, to say, you know, I love that person, but their style I don't think is right for this book um and to talk to them personally about it or whatever. But the idea is always I really like artists that have a bold style, you know, and every every one of those, from Greg, you know, Capullo to to um Jock and Francesco and Raphael and Sean and they all have very, very, you know, Danionic have very, very daring styles, I think, in some ways that are, you know, um present a kind of storytelling um tone that is fun to work with as a writer so like I know what Francesco can bring and so I like playing to his strengths you know and the reason I want to do a certain story with him is because he he is that guy and the same with with Greg I mean Batman is supposed to feel like the biggest boldest like most confident Batman when you first see him Bruce back in Gotham and so he's really a perfect fit for that, you know, when it begins. Um, and he can do the creepy stuff because you see him do it on Creech and Haunt, Spawn and all that. So, and Jock, you know, I wanted Gotham to feel kind of kinetic and scratchy and menacing and, and you know, all those things like you, that Jock can bring to the page in really a special way. So, you yeah, know, I try, I try and pick people that fit the story, but I really like to work with people that are have very, you know, have daring styles, I guess, in some way, because I feel like it really, there's a storytelling, you know, exuberance to their work that really translates on the page, like, and all of them have brought really good ideas, too. That's the thing is if they're a daring guy, or they have like a really distinctive style, it usually means that they have really strong ideas about storytelling. And that that's always really fun to work with. So, you know, a lot of them have brought, contributed hugely, not just on the, the page drawing, but behind the scenes, like talking ideas. And that's why Raphael was like co-creator now on American Vampire. I mean, he, he's like, you know, almost like part ghostwriter <laughs> on it.
1: Well, cool. Uh, I, I think uh, I kind of am I'm a little, you're, there's going to be nothing new coming up for a while because you've got your hands full with all of this stuff. Uh, unless, unless I'm completely mistaken, I'm
2: severed. I yeah. forgot. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's still severed. Dad, people shouldn't <laughs> forget severed. Severed's great. You wrote that like nine years ago, right? At this point, though, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah. I wrote it. <laughs> well, we wrote it a while ago. Um, not like we wrote it. We wrote it before. Um, before I was. Uh, sort of on all these books at DC, I was just starting at DC when we took it from a story that we were thinking of telling in, in, in script form and screenplay. Cause my friend that I'm writing it with, he's like my oldest friend from high school. We've been friends since we were 13. Um, he's in film, Scott Tuft. And, uh, he, we talked. we started talking about writing a horror movie that we thought would, 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 would be about this moment in American history that was sort of really optimistic, um, because of all these new inventions, like, You know, or inventions that even if they weren't new that year, you know, within 10 years, um, were making life really different all of a sudden. Like the automobile and the phonograph and the electric lights and the road building and, you know, the extension of all the rails. This moment where you could kind of feel it felt like you could kind of go anywhere and do anything and become anyone and that stuff. And then the, the flip side of that, which was the kind of the war happening overseas and the kind of impending you know implication that we would be involved in it and the darkness of all these new things too the isolation and the sense of transience and all that and try and write a horror story that had one character that represented one thing and side of that and another it's the other so you know the main characters are this boy jack who represents um you know a lot of the optimism at that time and runs away to meet his father because he's adopted, um, when he discovers he's adopted. Um, and his father's like a traveling minstrel, a blackface performer. And uh along the way he runs into this kind of demon of the road that's essentially like this just the salesman who isn't named, you know, he's just uh, a salesman on the road with this little case, and uh he he makes these jokes about having always been there and been you know, riding the rails for years and and uh he has this great smile. He's this older guy and he has this, you know, this really pearly whites and everyone's sort of like, How are you such a good salesman if you're you know, you're so nice? And he's like, Well, behind these teeth I have uh he's like, I got razor sharp chompers just like a shark. You know, I filed them down and everyone kinda laughs, but then when you turn your back on him he like takes out his nice teeth and <laughs> puts them in a case and he's got those teeth behind and you know, he gobbles you up on the road. So, um, that's where it came from, um, severed and stuff. And we, we were going to write it as in this other format. And then we were thinking when I started to do more comics and it became, well, it fits comics a lot better in the way that it's historical and it's about kids and, um, on the road. And a lot of those things are very difficult to translate to film and are really easy and fun to do emotionally on the page, you know, with getting you into the world of of, uh, this kind of wonder wonder world of wonder and stuff like that from Jack's point of view and this world of terror from from even with color and everything from um, the salesman's point so that's how that came about and it's not that it was like, it's not like a dusty old thing, it definitely (laughs) was something I've been working on until recently but luckily it's finished so I because I have all this other stuff I'm doing for DC now it's just being drawn so yeah I'm very excited about it and you know and i'm really really proud of also what what scott my friend has brought to it too cuz he's uh, we're we're you know we're we're different sorts of writers and there's a lot of stuff that i probably go more on the nose or straight down the line for and he was really intent on making it a slow burn and a long sort of psychologically frightening story um and i think it's a lot better for that for him and i see all you have to do is just if you just say a couple words to me i feel like i just start going and, and then <laughs> i feel worried that you guys you don't want to say anything cuz like you think it's just going to start me off in another direction and then it'll, it'll be like another 20 minutes before we get you get the chance to say goodnight
3: <laughs> no we all, we always appreciate the enthusiasm but no i i, I love That's
2: crazy talks so <laughs> <much. laughs>
3: yeah
2: <laughs> I mean, you can always just say. I tell, I tell my students too. What I'm talking, you can always just say like, "Shut up." That's for dangerous. Real. I, I get on a no. I get on a whole thing, and, and I don't mean quiet, to. You don't say anything. <laughs> oh man, this is what well, I don't mean. I, I don't mean to go on and on and on about. it. I just. I really am. You know, I'm. I'm excited about this year and what's coming up.
1: There's no. There's no there could be no doubt about that. No one could. No one could fake <laughs> it as convincingly, Scott. This is what I'm saying. Uh but as with all good things, I, I think we're going to pull this one to a close. Um, and uh, thank you so so much again for being so generous with your time, as you have been many times.
2: Absolutely. No, I I mean it. I always love coming on. My first review ever was on your site, and I was from. I think it was from that guy, Next Champion. The Next Champion for my Human Torch story that I wrote. Like all the way back, and it was like, one shot, and it was like the only and infer- first and only review I think I got on that comic, and it Even really that, really meant had a, great a lot. Artist on, yeah, I did, I did, I did, was it- and, and the cover was Adi Granoff, too. It's like, Jeez. I know, I know, I don't, was, I don't know like who I murdered in some. Past you're blessed past you're life, alive. but yeah. I am, so I'm definitely a lucky bastard. So I'm sure the other shoe will drop at some point. I'm well, gonna out like, you're draw dealing with own. shingles, so. So there's yeah. that. That's all I just I just sell my my yeah my family souls along the way, and <laughs> curse them with you know rashes and diseases and stuff so that I'm
1: able to continue. But, diseases that we all thought were stomped out in the late fifties, but yes, there you go.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> next up is like bubonic plague for my my grandpa. <laughs> See, you are dark man. That's all I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks very much.
2: No, thank you guys. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks again to the always thoughtful and always candid Scott Snyder for spending so much time with us and talking about uh, his work in uh, such an in-depth fashion. Uh, You can read Batman number one, The Swamp Thing number one, and you should. You can check out American Vampire from Vertigo Comics and Severed from Image Comics, a miniseries going on right now. Get over to ifanboy.com Dot com and you can read about everything the DC Relaunch that we can. All sorts of reviews and thoughts and, and discussions and stuff are going on all the time. We're very happy with that. And uh, thanks to Paul Montgomery for co-hosting this show with me, and we will see you again soon. Thanks.